0: Welcome to Interrevolutionary Radio with your host, Beth Green. This is James Maynard, your co-host. Today's topic, Challenging Every Stereotype, How African-American Domestic Workers Organize for Their Rights and Ours, a conversation with Premilla Nattison. African, African-American African women are often seen as oppressed, but they are much more. Their fight has been central to the fight of all women and the fight of us all. Meet Premilla Nattison, author of Welfare Warriors, and Domestic Workers Unite. Pramila is helping us rethink the role of black women in our history, but she also helps us see that black women cracked open the issue of the value of housework which impacts every one of us. We all have to deal with housework. Either we provide unpaid labor in the home, we expect someone else to do it, or we have to pay someone else so that we can go out and make money ourselves. What is the value of housework? How does it relate to the labor movement? Who is going to take care of the house, the kids, and us? How can we work inside and outside the home at the same time? How does welfare relate to housework, and how have black kids been hurt through the radicalization of welfare? Women, housework, race, and class. Stay tuned. And now, here's Beth.
1: I I think you meant the racialization of (laughs) welfare, not the radicalization of welfare. Oh, yes, yes. Yeah, that. Racialization
0: of welfare.
1: Well, I'm so happy to be talking to you guys today, and I cannot wait to interview Premila. She has so much fascinating information, and I think that we really need to understand that these are our issues, whoever we are, whether we're African American or white or Uh, undocumented workers, Latino men, women. The stories that she's telling about the struggle of these women is totally 100% relevant to every one of us today and always has been. So I'm very, very excited to greet her and to have her on our show and to learn what she has learned. But, First, uh, we're going to have the news of the inner revolution. Remember that those of you who have been with us, but for some of you who are absolutely new, the inner revolution is about a shift of consciousness of everybody towards more oneness, accountability, and mutual support. And that's the kind of revolution we need. (laughs) We need a lot of stuff on the outside, but boy, we got to change on the inside as well. So we're trying to do both. So uh, this is our... Weekly news of the Inner revolution update. Take it away, James. And I've invited Premila to chime in if she has any comment about the news also.
0: Very good. In the news this week, we're going to start with more infuriating information about the ongoing water crisis brought to our attention by the fight of Flint, Michigan, African-American residents and how this is just the tip of the iceberg throughout the country. The inner revolution requires us to come from a place of oneness, accountability, and mutual support. Unfortunately, this story that was going to follow here shows this attitude has not reached the Chicago Water Department as of yet. We're, given, we're going to give you a lot of details on this story so you can see the many devious ways we are being tricked into thinking our water is okay when it isn't. This is an amazing wake-up call for us all. So here goes. It's from The Guardian, February the 19th. Chicago used Water Department employees' homes to test for lead. New evidence suggests that the way U.S. water is tested for lead is vulnerable to conflicts of interest. The Guardian's analysis of records from the City of Chicago's Water Management Department, which serves 5.4 million residents, reveals that out of the 51 homes analyzed for lead contamination in the city, in the last round of testing, at least two dozen belong to the agency's own current or retired employees. This has allowed the city to pass regulatory muster with the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency. Quote, this does raise significant concerns about a conflict of interest, said Mark Edwards, the Virginia Tech scientist who helped expose the ongoing crisis in Flint. It has also been a long-term mystery... Why, the Chicago Water Department has never found problems with high lead in Chicago water, said Edwards, when outside entities, including the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency and Consumer Reports, have repeatedly done so. And there's more. The city of Chicago is required by the U.S. EPA to test what are deemed the highest-risk homes, based on a variety of factors, such as whether the homes have lead service lines and the year the homes were built. The Water Department maintains that these are the highest-risk homes in the city. But Edwards is skeptical. Quote, it seems hard to believe that these employee homes are the worst-case sampling sites that are supposed to be targeted, he said. These employees included senior engineers, plumbing inspectors, and even the former Deputy Commissioner of the Bureau of Water Supply, John Spatz. Further distorting the reality of the amount of lead in the water... The Water Department instructed the homeowners tested to, quote, remove faucet aerators, clean out any debris, flush for five minutes with cold water, and replace the aerator before testing the water. By doing so, the public water system could fail to identify the typically available lead contribution from that tape, and thus, from that tap, rather, and thus fail to take additional actions needed to reduce lead exposure in drinking water. This, according to the EPA. Also, a 2013 study of 32 homes in Chicago, published in the journal Environmental Science and Technology, found that the EPA's own lead and copper rule sampling protocol, quote, systematically misses the high lead levels and potential human exposure. The study's lead author, Miguel del Torrell, wrote that when sequential water samples were taken from homes, they found maximum lead values more than four times higher than Chicago's regulatory compliance results using a first-draw sampling protocol. The new evidence could test further doubt on already controversial testing methods highlighted following the ongoing water crisis in Flint, Michigan. Beth?
1: Well, you know, it's laughable but sickening to hear that because uh, people are being damaged, especially children who have permanent brain damage because of lead. And, you know, we've been following this story, of course, uh, since it exploded around Flint, Michigan, but it is so much bigger. And, you know, what? it's fascinating because we like to think, well, the problem is over there. Well, those poor people in Flint, right? Poor black people in Flint. But it's everywhere, and that really goes to show you how the vulnerability of our weakest Members of society actually is a vulnerability for everyone, and I think that's an extremely important message, and that's going to come up again on our show today. So these African uh, American uh, people, especially the mothers who have been fighting for Flint, Flint, uh, I I'm so upset I can't even talk. <laughs> <laughs> I really, really, who are fighting in Flint and for themselves are fighting. For people all over the nation, especially in the cities in the East Coast and the Midwest. So, you know, that water that's coming out of your faucet, you know.
0: (laughs) So, go on. And and, and don't forget the West Coast. This is all over the country. Yes. Okay. Yes, for more uh, news. Now for some good news, demonstrating that some people are using (laughs) common sense and caring to solve problems. We're sharing some of the specifics about the story because otherwise it could sound pie in the sky, but it's not. This story was posted December 22, 2015, by the Annie E. Casey Foundation. How Ohio went from investing in youth prisons to investing in youth's futures. In the past two decades, Ohio has slashed its state youth prison population by more than 80% while boosting public safety, improving youth outcomes, and saving taxpayers tens of millions of dollars. A new report from the Juvenile Justice Coalition of Ohio. The report... Bring youth home, building on Ohio's de-incarceration leadership, spotlights Reclaim, an innovative reform launched in 1995 that flipped financial incentives to encourage courts and probation agencies to serve kids locally in lieu of committing them to state youth prisons. Thanks to Reclaim, Ohio went from locking up 2,500 youth in 1992, 1,100 youth above capacity, to locking up less than 500 youth in 2014. Even more, the reform effort worked. Youth placed in reclaim programs were far less likely to be arrested or incarcerated at a later date compared to peers initially placed in state youth prisons or local correctional facilities. Bring Youth Home also outlines three newer initiatives rooted in evidence-based, non-residential treatment programs designed to help Ohio continue to reduce its reliance on incarceration. These three initiatives are... One, Behavioral Health and Juvenile Justice Initiative. From 2005 to 2014, this initiative served more than 2,500 higher-risk youth with significant behavioral health and substance abuse challenges. It has proven to be both a cheaper and more effective option for keeping youth on a path toward success. Statistically speaking, Ohio spent $5,000 per BHJJ youth and documented just a 2% incarceration rate among participants who successfully completed the program. In comparison, incarceration has cost the state about $167,000 per youth, while yielding a 19% reincarceration rate. Secondly, targeted reclaim. Launched in 2009, this initiative offers community treatment instead of incarceration to youth who have been convicted of felonies. It has helped correctional facilities in these areas cut admissions by 68%. Third... Competitive Reclaim, this initiative, which Ohio rolled out in 2015, covers 24 counties and has a three-pronged uh, focus. One, diversion programs for low-risk youth. Two, intervention programs for moderate and high-risk youth. And three, multi-county collaborations to boost in-home treatment options in less populous counties. Beth?
1: Well... uh You know, again, why don't we start uh, noticing that the people who are, quote, committing crimes are human beings who have needs that probably aren't being met. And uh, I'm so happy to hear that there's some awareness. And, of course, there's a big movement in our country today about cutting our prison population. And we're going to be having somebody on talking about that in a couple of weeks. But whether it's prison reform or welfare reform, we've been very Uh, mean-spirited, draconian, and punitive towards people who need help, and the results have not been pretty. And what we're seeing here is that common sense and caring and humanity really have a better impact and are more cost-effective. I mean, for God's sakes, I mean, if we have no other motivation, (laughs) let's save money, at least. Okay, we have one more story, James, take it away.
0: Okay. Our last story demonstrates what ordinary people can do to help a massive problem not being handled effectively by governments. It's from The Guardian, January the 24th of this year. Greek Islanders to be nominated for Nobel Peace Prize. Greek Islanders who have been found on the front line of the refugee crisis are to be nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize with the support of their national government. Of the 900,000 refugees who entered Europe last year, most were received scared, soaked, and traveling in rickety boats by those who live on the Greek islands in the Aegean Sea. The islanders, including fishermen who gave up their work to rescue people from the sea, are in line to be honored with one of the world's most esteemed awards. There's been an international petition in their favor, including stories of grandmas who have sung terrified little babies to sleep. While teachers, pensioners, and students have spent months offering food, shelter, clothing, and comfort to refugees who have risked their lives to flee war and terror. Spyro Limnios, an activist in Greece for Avaz, the online organization who sponsored the petition and who distributed aid in the islands, said The people involved in the solidarity networks organized and helped the desperate when the governments weren't even willing to recognize that there was a crisis. By opening their hearts, the Islanders sent a powerful message that humanity is above races, above nations. Beth?
1: Well, I don't know if I would have done as much. <laughs> you know what I mean? These people, uh, you know, when you listen to this, and the poor Greek people are going through so much themselves with their own economic problems. Uh, I just have tremendous admiration for people who put themselves out and, um, you know, who rise above these uh, so-called differences that we have. So I'm so glad to have heard that story in the midst of all of the rest of it, aren't you, James?
0: Oh, yes. (laughs)
1: It's very encouraging. So now I'd like to introduce you to our guest, Premalyn Addison. She is a professor, an academic, but she is not an academic academic. She's an activist in her own right, and she is using her education, her research, her knowledge, to empower everyone and to tell uh, a very un, very un- important story, or a couple of really important stories that most of us don't know anything about. So I am so thrilled to
2: welcome Premila to our show. Hi, Premila. Hi, Beth. Thank you so much for having me on. I have to say it's such an honor uh, to be speaking with you and, um, you know, especially because as I was listening to those three news stories that uh, you had on the show today, um, really the focus on sort of thinking about social change, about how to make the world a better place, uh, about ways in which individuals can be involved uh, is really part of what I try to do in all of my research and writing and my activism. I think we certainly have a whole host of of social and political and economic problems, but I think we also have to begin to think about what exactly do we do about them. So I appreciate that.
1: Oh, thank you. I could not agree with you more. I was a social political activist since the time I was nine years old. That was back in 1954, which was probably before you were born. <laughs> and I, <laughs> uh, you know, I had a lot of experience in uh, social activism. But I discovered after years and, you know, every possible kind of movement that I could have been in from Ban the Bomb movement back in 54, you know, to the anti-Vietnam War movement, to the uh, anti-racism movement, the anti-apartheid movement, the anti-Vietnam War movement, the women's movement, workplace organizing, all of it, I discovered that there's something has to change inside us. And uh, there are so many people who just have that feeling that that that's something that quality within them of caring for others that is so extraordinary we have to get beyond just blaming but we have to come into solving and I you know I don't know my experience is that it starts with us and I became a spiritual teacher and a, and a counselor after I in, after 78 but the problems don't go away when we you know sit we can meditate from today to 100 years from now And that's not going to change our world unless we bring that together, you know, the inner understanding of our oneness and our actual behavior. And you have told stories about people. I can't even believe they did what they did. And I want to know how they did it, you know, how they did. But first, I want to start with you. I understand, I don't know a lot about you, but I understand that you were uh, came from South Africa, you were born in South Africa, and that your yes. first political action was around anti-apartheid. Can you tell us about your history and how you became such an activist?
2: Um, yes. So I was born in South Africa. I came here as a young child with my parents, um, and we did go back uh, periodically, and that. This was during the time of apartheid. So as a young teenager, I experienced what it was like uh, to live under apartheid, and it was a bit shocking to me as a young person who had grown up in the United States, uh, who theoretically had the right to go wherever I wanted to go, uh, to be denied entrances to bathrooms and to uh, playgrounds and things like that. Um, so that was a bit hard for me to understand and to deal with. Uh, but it really wasn't until I was in high school when a friend of my father's came to visit us us. <laughs> And told me about his detention and arrest as an anti-apartheid activist uh, and especially the way he had been tortured when he was under the control of the white security forces and that had a really tangible impact on on me hearing his stories about abuse and detention and the way in which his uh, effort to in a peaceful way transform the South African government had such a negative impact on him um, and it was through that that I started a, an anti-apartheid Apartheid organization at my high school, and after that, I went to um, the University of Michigan, where I uh, continued to be involved in the anti-apartheid movement. And before you that, go on,
1: before you go on, Premila, could you explain to some of our listeners may not really even know about apartheid? <laughs> you know what I mean? They're, right. they may not. They are be too young, or they haven't learned about it in a school. Could you just like summarize in a minute? What apartheid was in South Africa?
2: Well, apartheid was very similar to the system uh, to the racial separa- the racial segregation system that uh like Jim Crow in the US South. So so it was a system of formal legal segregation of people of color, uh black people which included Indians colored and indigenous Africans from whites. Um, but along with the separation in public spaces was also job uh job segregation and denial of opportunity um and a real hierarchy in terms of the ways people are allowed to live and the ways people, and and ways in which the people are able to advance economically. So it was a system of both political oppression uh, as well as economic oppression.
1: Yes, and the women were left home when the men went to work. I mean, there was even a segregation of the men and women, as as far as I recall, in South Africa
2: itself, tearing apart families. Technically... um, the indigenous Africans who had been living in South Africa for hundreds and hundreds of years were not citizens of this country of South Africa that had been settled by Europeans um, and so the what the white south african government did is it created what they called homelands which were almost like our native american reservations mm-hmm. and indigenous africans were supposed to be citizens of these homelands and not of the country of south africa so they were not even legally allowed to be in what was white south africa which was actually 90% of the country at the time unless they had a work permit and unless they were allowed to legally be there and a, and an employer vouched for them Most Most of the men, uh, the indigenous men, uh, worked in the gold mines or in other kinds of industry or as manual laborers. Uh, A lot of the African women, a lot of the indigenous African women actually worked as domestic workers in white homes. So the people who were left in the homelands were the elderly or the young children, those who were unable to work for um, white industry or white families.
1: You know, there's such a parallel between that and the story of domestic workers that you're going to be talking about. I just think that was such an important thing for us, because when we look at it in South Africa, we say, oh, my God, that was so terrible, right (laughs) <laughs> but, but when it's closer to home, it, like, it gets a little bit more uncomfortable. So we, we, you know, we don't always see it in the same way. So I'm sorry I interrupted your story, which I asked you to tell me about, about how you became politically involved. But I thought it was really important to let people know something of that history, because a lot of Americans don't know much about our, even our own history, much less anyone else's. Yeah, absolutely. So, can you go back to how you you moved forward from having started this this uh, focus?
2: Sure. So, um, you know, one of the things, so so I initially was involved in the anti-apartheid movement, um, but came to very early on understand the parallels between racism in South Africa and institutional structures of racism in particular and racism here in the United States. Mm -hmm. Um, And I was working with an an organization at the University of Michigan uh, called the United Coalition Against Racism, and we were deeply involved in addressing issues of uh race and class on the campus as well you know the question of uh, black student enrollment on the campus uh there were a number of racist incidents that occurred on campus um, so we began to address the question of uh student enrollment uh the question of curriculum at the University of Michigan uh as as well as the question of harassment that students of color in particular dealt with uh and and again part of what what we were trying to do was uh, draw parallels between racism in the United States as well as in other parts of the country.
1: And this was what year? The, what period of
2: time? This was in the mid-1980s. So I, <laughs> I, I entered the University of Michigan in 1985. Um, so, so it was in the mid to late 1980s. So what uh, attracted you to, I think the first
1: book of the two that we're talking about was about welfare women. What brought you into uh, the interest about welfare and how
2: did you get these important stories Yeah. The um, Actually, the organization that I worked with at the University of Michigan, the Student Activist Organization, initiated a project with the surrounding Ann Arbor community that we call the Black Women's Oral History Project. So students actually went into Ann Arbor and began to interview African American women who had lived in Ann Arbor nearly their, their entire lives. And it was through that project that many of us came to learn about the welfare rights movement. And this was a movement of poor women, uh, mostly African-American, but not exclusively, mm-hmm. uh, poor African-American women who in the 1960s began to demand higher welfare assistance and better treatment from their caseworkers. Uh, welfare was a program uh it's also known as it was also at that time known as aid to families with dependent children was started in 1935 during the great depression uh, as one of the new deal programs and uh for most of its history it had served almost exclusively white women uh and then beginning in the late 1950s more and more african american women started to apply for welfare uh although the program was still predominantly white but there was a tremendous amount of racial discrimination in the ways in which benefits were given out. Um, and so the African-American women uh, who I write about in the 1960s and 70s began to address the question of racial inequality as well as the stigma that was associated with welfare. Uh, starting in the 1960s, many states, uh, as well as the federal government, had begun to think about ways to actually get women off the welfare rolls and to get them into the workforce. And the assumption was that it was illegitimate for them to receive welfare assistance, that they, in fact, should be working rather than uh, in the uh war- a- a- rather than at home taking care of their children. And so this was something that these women fought against. These were poor black women who had worked most of their lives, who had very little opportunity to stay home and take care of their children. And so they wanted that option to do that. They wanted welfare to provide them with a choice about whether to join the the paid labor force or whether to stay home and take care of their children.
1: Well, of course, the irony is that if you force women off welfare, Um, then you have to find other ways of taking care of their children. (laughs) You know, somebody has to do this work. And I I think that it's the invisibility of the, uh, uh, you know, of women's work. And that's still true today. You know, women are, a lot of women have to go out and work this what we used to call in the wages for housework came the se- uh, campaign the second job, because women have traditionally been primarily responsible for the house, for the kids, and without that work there would be no labor force. You couldn't I mean you you know you could not have people going to work if nobody fed them, if nobody cleaned the house, if nobody did the shopping. Somebody has to do that work. Somebody has to do it for the owners of the companies. Somebody has to do it. For the workers, whether you're a woman or a man, you still have these needs. And because this work has been associated with women, it's been that invisible housework that's so close to home, no one has given it any value. It's never been paid for unless you have to hire somebody. And suddenly, when you have to hire somebody, it's like, oh, this is expensive. Or who am I going to take on? Uh, to, uh, you know, that I can trust to take care of the children. I mean, it's a very complicated thing. And suddenly you see that this is a much bigger deal than we think it is. It's like, oh, well, it's just housework. Well, just housework? You know, the housework is the reproduction of humanity.
2: (laughs) You know, we don't... Yes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, we don't go on. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And it, it is absolutely invisible work. Um, And it's very important to talk about it and to recognize it as work. And that's partly what the welfare rights movement was fighting for, was the recognition that the work that they were doing in the home, the work that they were doing to raise their children, was important, meaningful, valuable work that ultimately made the world a better place. So they certainly wanted that recognition. I think there, in fact, was a kind of a history. I mean, the creation of the welfare program in 1935 was premised on this idea of recognizing that uh, uh, mothering in particular was work and that women should be supported in this work as mothering. Uh, But even welfare in the 1930s, 40s, and 50s never paid very much. So these mothers who did receive assistance were incredibly poor. So it was never a very generous program. Um, You know, and the interesting thing about the debate about welfare in the 1960s is it was very expensive to force women to go out into the workforce because you did have to then provide them with some kind of support to put their children in daycare, or hire somebody to take care of their children. Um, and in fact, some of the women who were pushed off of welfare ended up taking care of other women's children. I mean, right. the only kind of jobs that were available to these poor African-American women, some of whom had not had formal education, was to end up doing things like domestic work, the cleaning and the caring that they actually could have done for their very own family. But despite the fact that it was important, that, that it was expensive, the state still did this in part because of a certain kind of discourse about the notion of poverty and the culture of poverty that they believed was prevalent at that time. That is, they assumed that just the fact of women being in the paid workforce would somehow have a more positive impact on these women and their children than allowing them to stay home and take care of their children.
1: Now, has that turned out to be true?
2: Uh, <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's interesting to look at the distinct discourses around gender and race in the 1960s, because this was also a time when a lot of middle class women were pushing for the right to enter the workforce if they wanted. But the discourse yes. around middle class women entering the workforce suggested that if, in fact, they left their children and they entered the workforce, it would negatively impact their children. Yet the discourse <laughs> for poor women was quite the opposite. Uh, so, But, you know, the questions of motherhood uh, and how we view motherhood, I think, are intimately bound up with the politics of race and class.
1: That is really true. Now, my mother was one of those mothers who had to go to work. There wasn't any choice. I'm white. But, you know, we were poor, right? And there was no choice. My father was sick, and uh, that was the end of it. And I was a latchkey kid. You know, I came home Mm -hmm. and was locked in the house because my mother wasn't home. And uh, Mm -hmm. there really wasn't anybody who could take care of me except my brother. And in those days, it was legal to do that, right? And my brother would beat me up. So, (laughs) (laughs) you know, I'm a great example. You know, it's like the whole problem, uh, whichever way you're being forced, it stinks. You know what I mean? Whether you're being forced um, to stay at home because there's prejudice against women in the workforce and women don't make enough money outside of the home to pay to get childcare or you're forced out of the home, whatever it is, there's a lack of uh, recognition of all the work and there is a lack of decent pay for a lot of workers, whether it's household, domestic workers, welfare. I mean, welfare is definitely the bottom. I've experienced it myself, myself. Although there was something that was one step worse, which was general relief. Um, which I was on because I was disabled, and uh, you know the these the changes in the attitudes towards welfare hit everybody. Uh, Ronald Reagan came into power in as the governor in California and threw people who were on disability off uh, onto the street, and I was one of them. And uh, I wasn't even allowed to have a car because I was disabled, because my car, you know, would be wasted. I mean, why would a disabled person need a car? I, obviously, mm-hmm. we don't shop. So anyway, uh, it's 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 all of it. I mean, when you look at it, these this is just part of a whole mosaic of prejudice, lack of support for people and and their real needs. So what happened? Uh, would you would you describe what happened with welfare re- so-called welfare reform and what the impact of that was? And I have a question that I'm burning to ask you. I keep reading that a lot of black people have uh, a loyalty to the Clintons, but the Clintons did the prison reform and the welfare reform that disproportionately hurt black people. Can you explain that to me? So... um, You know, I don't mean to be rude, but I just don't get it. So I really, really would like to understand this. So if you could first tell us
2: about that welfare reform and uh, what the impact was. Sure. Um, Yeah, the... uh welfare program that i mentioned aid to families depend, aid to families with dependent children uh that had been instituted in 1935 was dismantled in 1996 um, and it was a bipartisan bill in congress that was signed by president bill clinton and what that bill did is it transformed what had been a federal entitlement that is if in fact you met the income criteria uh that the federal government had laid out you would be guaranteed uh, welfare assistance if you were a single parent with a child. Uh, so in 1996, that was transformed into block grants to states, so states simply got a chunk of money. But now there were a number of federal limitations on how that money could be used and who could receive assistance. For example, no one could receive assistance for more than two consecutive years. No one could receive assistance for more than five years in their lifetime. Uh, There was now a mandatory federal-level work requirement, so recipients had to work for at least 35 hours a week. Um, states could now uh use their money, which is it was referred to as TANF, temporary assistance to needy families, could use the TANF money in a number of different ways. So the money did not have to go directly to the recipients. Uh the money could be sent, for example, to corporations who might hire welfare recipients to do work. In most cases, um, welfare recipients were working for their welfare check which means that they were earning a lot less than uh minimum wage yeah um, and there were there were no regulations about the kind of work or, or safety or anything like that um, so there was a lot of uh corruption uh in the welfare system and then the ways in which states as states were were measured and judged uh by uh the federal government in terms of how how many welfare recipients they could get off the welfare rolls. So yeah. the measure of success became the reduction of the number of women on welfare, which resulted in the states attempting to simply push people off or discourage them from even applying for welfare yeah. in the first place. Yeah. So it really didn't serve any longer as a program to aid poor single parents in, on any level at all. Uh, it served to deter them, it served, it served to stigmatize them, and it mm-hmm. served to criminalize them. One of the things that states have been have been doing to try to discourage um, uh, needy parents from applying is requiring fingerprinting and drug testing. You know, and that's uh, a very clear sort of pattern of um, administration that automatically identifies somebody as a as a criminal or a potential criminal.
1: Now, is it still? that bad or have there been any improvements you know i sit here and i shiver when i hear what you say <laughs> because the the degree of poverty that this created was so much worse i mean people have become more impoverished because of these programs
2: yes uh- it's still very, very bad um and and in fact it's I think it's getting worse. I mean, the Republicans are now calling for complete abolition of uh all federal welfare programs. Uh, and they believe that uh, the federal government shouldn't be involved in assisting the needy at all. Um, so, you know, if a Republican uh, is elected, there's a possibility that we might not have a welfare program at all. Uh, but things are still very bad. Um, the food stamp program uh, is also uh, very much in danger of a number of people yeah. being kicked off of the welfare, uh, I'm sorry, off of the food stamp program because of uh, federal mandates about uh, the kind of a that, that, that individuals could get and how long they could be on. And the, there's also a work requirement that is now instituted as part of the food stamp program. Um, so And there's a lot of people who are disabled who do rely on food stamps who are unable yeah. to work.
1: Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I mean, not everybody is, is able to work outside the home, and it's not meant for everyone. There aren't even that many jobs. I mean, it's also upside down. So, do you mind me asking you about the, the, the loyalty to the Clintons? I, I don't know. If you feel uncomfortable mm-hmm. answering that question, please just tell me. I don't want to answer that question. <laughs>
2: Well, I, well, I don't think that there's any homogenous black community sentiment, um, okay. you know, and I, and, and, and I don't think we can talk in those terms. I think, uh, when Bill Clinton was elected, uh, uh, in 1992, he in fact did have a lot of African American support, but he had a lot of white support too. He was, you know, sure. a relatively popular president during his time. Yeah. I think today there's a lot of reflection and a lot of criticism, both in the white community and the black community community about what happened under the Clinton administration. And I think some of this is coming out in the in the current campaign with Hillary Clinton. Um, and there have been a lot of prominent African Americans who have come out against uh, yes. Hillary Clinton as well. So, yes. I, so, so I think it's important to not homogenize yes. uh, the political perspectives of the African American community. And I think there's certainly some people who still do support the Clintons and um, some African Americans. And, 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 you know, I mean, I think the message that I've seen coming out most clearly in relationship to this campaign and Hillary Clinton is the question of gender and the question of the ways in which older white women in particular that are about her age are, are pushing for and advocating support for her despite the fact uh, uh, that she was very much a part of welfare reform and welfare is not just a black issue, it's a woman's issue fundamentally and so I'm not quite sure how people like Gloria Steinem can continue to support someone yeah. like Hillary Clinton, given her role in welfare reform, well, or the Black Caucus, and uh, I'm, you know, I'm not, I'm not sure what position the Black Caucus has taken. They, uh, the Black Caucus uh,
1: supports, uh, endorsed Hillary Clinton. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you yeah, know, this yeah, is that's I mean, what, a lot I, of,
0: I, Yeah, I, I know. A lot of, I
1: don't mean to say that all Black people feel that way. It mm-hmm. just seems like there's still a lot of support there, and I didn't mean to put you on the. Hook or anything. I was, so I didn't know who else to ask, so I asked Mm -hmm. you.
2: Well, I think it's a very mixed bag. And as I said, I think there are definitely some uh, African Americans, particularly those who are very connected to the established Democratic Party. And I think it's a Democratic Party machine uh, that has brought people on board. Um, And so you see a lot of individuals who believe that uh, Hillary Clinton is the only candidate who could possibly beat somebody like Donald Trump, and therefore they do get behind somebody like her. Um, And but then you also also have a lot of you know white women and feminists who are unfortunately in that same camp as well and feel that uh, having the first woman president is more important than having the right uh, person for the position.
1: Right. Well, I don't feel that way, and I'm an old feminist, a very old one. <laughs> so uh, not all I...
2: not all <laughs> the older white feminists at all. I'm older that's... myself, but <laughs> oh, oh, really? Oh, you? Look, well, you look, I'm right. I'm almost I'm almost fifty. So
1: oh my God, that's your. Spring chicken. I'm going to be 71 this week. (laughs) And now, oh, my God, time is passing. Now I want to get to the domestic workers because, first of all, I see Household Workers Unite and Domestic Workers Unite as the name of your book. And which one is it? It's Household Workers Unite. Oh, no. So I put the wrong thing in the e-card. Okay, shame on me. Forget that. It's Household Workers Unite. I love that. Because here it is. This is more of a, you know, a discussion about wages for housework. That of, you know, g- getting some respect for the value of housework. You this, according to what I've read, uh, as you said that it was, this movement was happening between the 1950s and 70s. As that's the heyday of that movement. Please tell us how these women were able to organize. In such difficult circumstances,
2: that's so fascinating. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, you know, it's, it's one of the more interesting labor histories uh, that I've run across. You know, when we think about labor organizing, we tend to think about people who are working in collective spaces. They might be working in in offices or, uh, you know, in factories um, or places like that. But if you think about household labor and the way it's privatized, the way it's behind closed doors and in individual homes, it's a very difficult workforce to organize. Uh, and so the women who I write about uh, obviously couldn't organize in their places of employment, so they organized in public places. They organized in city parks. They organized on the buses. Um, There's one story of a woman named Dorothy Bolden, who was a domestic worker organizing in Atlanta, who was close friends with Martin Luther King, had been involved in the civil rights movement and the struggle to desegregate schools in Atlanta. And she uh, decided, she actually spoke to Martin Luther King, uh, who told her that she should go out and organize domestic workers. And so she made up leaflets and she started to ride the city buses in Atlanta. And those city buses became almost like meeting grounds or, recruit, or recruiting grounds for her. So the public spaces become an important place where these women are able to gather and connect with one another. And it was through that connection that they were able to begin to talk about things like their work conditions and their rates of pay. Uh, And they established uh, employment centers. They established standard rates of pay. They established standard contracts that they wanted employers to sign that would guarantee them certain kinds of food or certain break times or access to the telephone and things like that. So it was really about addressing both the work conditions um, as well as the wages.
1: Now, having been disabled since I'm 15, um, you know, I've really never been able to clean my house, and as I got older, I was able to afford to hire somebody, but I never knew that there were any standards. It was like, you know, it was between me and, quote, the girl, right? (laughs) I always hated that word. Uh, I've hired a girl, you know, she's 50 years old, to clean my house, or or the maid, all those words, you know, they just kind of send chills up your spine, Right but i never even knew that there were any standards it always so how has that played out uh, i bet n- nobody uh, that i know knows about this
2: mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, you, you know, I'll just say one thing about the language first and the language and the and the, the ways in which these women were referred to was absolutely central to this movement. So they rejected all kinds of terms. They rejected being called a girl. They rejected being called a maid. They rejected being called a servant. In yeah. fact, their choice, uh, their, their preferred uh, term was household technician. That's what they wanted to be called, the household technician. Um You know, in terms of the standards, uh, domestic work was one of the occupations that was excluded from the labor protections that were passed in the 1930s. So when we think about, you know, uh, the status of American workers today, the fact that we're guaranteed a minimum wage, most workers are guaranteed a minimum wage or guaranteed breaks, uh, are guaranteed certain kinds of safety standards, um, all of this guaranteed Social Security or unemployment compensation. These were labor rights that were passed in the 1930s. There were a few occupations that were excluded from that. Domestic work was one of them. And agricultural mm-hmm. work was another one. There were a few uh, others as well. Uh, and these were occupations that were populated largely by African Americans. So it had to do with white Southern Democrats who insisted on these exclusions in order to support federal uh, labor policy. Um, and so there had been this historic exclusion of this occupation, and I think that exclusion is important because it almost created a sense that domestic work was not real work, right? It somehow didn't qualify. It wasn't the same as other kinds of occupations where workers do in fact have rights, and some of it had to do with the race of the of the women doing the work. Some of it had to do with the fact that the work was taking place in the privacy of the home, and some Mm -hmm. of it had to do with the association of this labor with women's unpaid labor in the home. Yeah. Um, so throughout the 1950s and the 1960s, there were efforts to bring domestic work under labor law, to give it the same kinds of labor protections that other kinds of work had. So domestic workers, the, the ones I write about in my book, um, were fighting to improve the standards with their employers and contracts through contracts with their employers. But they were also fighting for these federal and state-level labor protections. So one of their main goals was the struggle for amendments to the Fair Labor Standards Act. The Fair Labor Standards Act is the New Deal legislation that gave workers minimum wage. And domestic workers were excluded from that until those amendments were passed in 1974. And the African-American women I write about were uh, important lobbyists to push for that change, and they were eventually successful. And yet, does anybody know that? Uh, yeah, well, that raises the, the, the huge question about enforcement. So yeah. even though today, um, even though today domestic workers are, in fact, guaranteed many labor rights, they're guaranteed Social Security and unemployment, as well as minimum wage, those are not always enforced, and some of it has to do with employers who are not aware or employers who just find it too cumbersome to fill out the paperwork
1: hmm So, would an employer be expected to pay a uh, Social Security tax for a, 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 a household worker?
2: Yes. Yes. If they work for you, I think, more than a certain number of hours a week. I think it's a different state by state. But, yes, you, you are required to pay Social Security um, for your employee.
1: So, you know, I suspect that I don't have someone here long enough because of my accountant probably would have told me. <laughs> you know? mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, I didn't even know that. And I'm not the most ignorant person on the planet. I'm not saying I know everything, but I'm not the most, and I didn't even know that. So, mm-hmm. oh, my God, we are running out of time. Uh,
2: Premaloo, what would you, what, what's next for you? Um, in terms of writing and research? Or, or in terms of your passion, of where you're going? Um. Well, I am, you know, this book is something, there's a very vibrant domestic worker rights movement right now. I mean, what I'm writing about, what I wrote about was the 1960s and the 1970s, uh, but there is a vibrant movement of household workers right now that started about 20 years ago. I have been working with them for the past 10 years or so. They have a national organization called the National Domestic Workers Alliance. They have worked with an international federation of domestic workers. Workers that is domestic worker rights groups from all over the world, including Brazil and Mexico, and India, uh, uh, Germany, uh, Ireland, all over the place. Uh, and these and this international federation has gone before the United Nations International Labor Organization, uh, and. Passed a convention a few years ago to establish global standards for domestic work. That is, standards of pay, of living conditions, etc., that would apply to all domestic worker situations. Oh, and, wow. And I- yeah, and and I'm talking about this current movement now because I think it's really important to recognize and to think about how this is not just an issue in the past, and in fact, what we've seen is growing exploitation of household workers, and today the domestic workforce, the household worker workforce, is not primarily African American women; it's mm-hmm. undocumented immigrant women and some yeah. documented um, and some undoc and some documented Im- women as well. Yes. Um, and these women are very vulnerable to exploitation. Sometimes yes. they, they don't speak English as their first language, and if they don't have documentation, uh, they're obviously in a very precarious situation. And so we are seeing ongoing exploitation and vulnerabilities that these women are experiencing, and I think it's just really important that we, that we be aware of that and recognize that, and most importantly, do what we can to support the organizing that's taking place around us.
1: That's fantastic. I, I, uh, in my youth, I, was, uh, I went to some, quote, third world countries. And if we think domestic workers are badly treated here, I, I, I saw things when I was in Latin America, for example, that I just I couldn't even believe it, what was happening right in front of my face. <laughs> so it, it's, I'm, I'm just so grateful that you're, you know, that you're working there. And by the way, we have a housekeeper. It's a white man. isn't Uh that funny Uh Uh (laughs) and he's he's a blessing to us believe me I mean every every, you know to me somebody who takes care of my home is uh, like is gold you know Uh I I couldn't live without them and I'm so grateful for them and I'm so grateful to you uh, for taking the time to talk to us about these Hugely important issues. You see how complex audience this really is. How many issues are involved here? And the whole issue of the exploitation of undocumented workers and how that weakens everybody. Uh, you know, it all seems to come together in these stories that you're telling. And I just, I'm just so grateful that you've come on and you've shared some knowledge with us.
2: Well, thank you very, very much, Beth. I really appreciate having the chance to
0: talk with you.
1: Thank you. And before we go, uh, James is going to tell us what we're cooking up for next week.
0: Yes. Coming up next week, corporate criminals get away with murder. Who's fighting for us? Meet Mike Papantonio, Papantonio, a lawyer who fights and wins. Did you know that DuPont Chemical knowingly poisoned and killed people for decades through irresponsibly dumping chemicals into land and water? That the lead industry bragged that lead was good for your health, even though they knew that lead pipes permanently harm people, especially children? If these kinds of stories make you mad, sick, or just want to cry, you will want to hear Mike Papantonio. He's a lawyer who has spent his life fighting corporate criminals. He's taken on DuPont plus pharmaceutical drug litigation, asbestos, breast implants, factory farming, securities fraud, tobacco, and other such cases, and has received numerous multi-million dollar verdicts on behalf of victims of corporate malfeasance. He's also the host of Ring of Fire on radio and TV. This guy is fighting for us, and he's trying to get other lawyers to do the same. So tune into this show to learn about Mike and the many David and Goliath fights we are winning. And let's ask Mike why those responsible are not in jail. Now for a final word.
1: Yeah, I'm mad. They're killers. I mean, it's really true. If you, if you poison people you call, cause cancer that kills them, you are a killer, and when you do it knowingly, you're a killer. I don't get it. Anyway, God bless everyone for uh, you know, there are, there are so many fabulous people in this world, and we have to keep reminding ourselves that as bad as things are, there are still people who have the guts. The caring, the determination to, to make the fight. And Pr- Premola is one of them. And I just can't thank her enough for being on our show. And we will see you guys next week.
0: Thank you for joining us for this edition of Revolutionary Radio with Beth Green and James Maynard. The next episode will broadcast live next Thursday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time, 3 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. And don't forget Revolutionary TV on voiceamerica.tv. Think outside the box and join us.